I'm sure some of them are real, but you have so much more power and personal agency than you think in your low moments. You can take some step today, today, make a plan today to move forward. It starts with figuring out what you want. It starts with really just take out a piece of paper and tell yourself you're not going to censor and just write for a half hour. And even if you're not a writer, especially if you're not a writer, grab a pen and, and just write down everything that's going through your mind and find the thread of where you want to go and let that be your North star and just take a small step in that direction. I'm Doug Bobst, personal trainer, best-selling author and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst. And let's face it, the television and film industry has definitely changed during this pandemic. And my guest today is the co-creator, showrunner, and executive producer of one of the most popular shows there is right now that, like so many, had to pause production during COVID. The show I am referencing is Billions, and Billions is also one of my personal favorites and a favorite to so many. So my guest today is Brian Koppelman, who is the showrunner, co-creator, and executive producer for the show Billions. Over the past two decades, Brian Koppelman and his writing, producing, directing partner, David Levine, have created an influential and diverse body of work in both film and television. Some of their most noteworthy credits include Rounders, Ocean's 13, Solitary Man, The Illusionist, Runaway Jury, Tilt, ESPN's 30 for 30, This Is What They Want, and I Smile Back. Koppelman is also the host and creator of the hit podcast, The Moment, with Brian Koppelman. And today we cover so much, including Brian's backstory, uh, what it was like to stop production of Billions and what the future looks like on that. We also chat about what it was like to work with Edward Norton and Matt Damon early on in their career. We touch on Brian's incredible health transformation of his own and the importance of journaling to gain clarity, creativity, and create change in your life. And you will also hear me give some real-time health and fitness advice to Brian on some questions that he actually had for me in the middle of our episode. So if you are currently struggling and uncertain about your future, this is the perfect episode for you. He is going to give lots of advice about how to deal with the feeling of being stuck and tips on how to be able to follow your heart's desire and do what you really love. And everything he is about to say in this episode is all based on his own life experiences and I'm sure that a lot of people, especially in these hard times, can truly relate. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Brian Koppelman to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Brian, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, hey, man. It's my absolute pleasure. This was going to be great. Yeah, man. And I've been so looking forward to this interview. I'm like we were chatting before. I mean, Billions is by far uh, my favorite show. I mean, not just right now, but of all time, there's a few that I can watch over and over again. There's three, one, the wire, because I'm in Baltimore. So the wire obviously hits home with me Two, entourage. And then three is billions. And I just commend you for everything you've accomplished in your career. 
so I know right now, I guess, kind of production and in the show's kind of paused. How is how have you really managed to go through that and what's on the horizons? And is there any timeline and when the show's coming back? Yeah, and thank you. It's always really sweet to hear reaction like that to the show. And both uh, David Simon and uh, Doug Allen are great at what they do. The truth is, whatever my challenges are with regard to dealing with the pandemic and whatever uncertainty I'm grappling with, I don't dwell on it and I don't really give much light to it because, you know, people all over the country, man, all over the world are, are really having to deal with a kind of uncertainty that I'm not. So yes, do I wish we were making the show right now? Of course, but we were able to stop production, keep most people healthy. There was one actor who was, had been in, in Billions in one episode of Billions, an incredible New York actor, and he passed away not having anything to do with Billions, but the, nobody else really got sick and, and we stopped production in early in March. And so for that, I'm grateful, you know, that we're in a position where we could stop, where we're in a position where we could look after each other and the best we could, and we'll go back to production when everybody feels like it's safe. Some shows are back now. We're all watching closely to see how they do it so that we can model best practices when we go back. I've been writing, David and I and our writing team have been writing season six. So we will shoot seasons five and six together. You know, we'll finish season five and go right into shooting season six, whenever it is that we start. But not in a gratitude journal kind of a way, or although I actually think gratitude journals are great, but in a, in a, in a, in a sort of genuine way, I'm much more focused on being grateful about the fact that like my family's all healthy than I am thinking about the missed opportunities during this time. Because if I could focus on a negative and change it, then I'm fine to do that. But this is a thing that none of us can control. And, and I don't really know what you gain by living there if you don't have to live, if you don't have to live there. So that's my long-winded way of saying I'm doing, I'm doing as well as you could do given the current set of circumstances. Yeah, man, you, you brought up some really good points. And number one is, is gratitude and knowing that, you know, you're blessed to have your family healthy. You're, you're blessed to have this show kind of continuing to roll. Like you said, you'll continue shooting season five when you're able to, you're already working on season six and that you know, there's so many other people in the world that have way worse problems than you and I. And it's important for us to kind of remember that as we're going through adversity, as we're going through these tough moments in life, because if we're just focusing on all of our problems, everything that's going wrong in our life, it's going to completely shift our perspective. And I know for you, gratitude today is huge and it's been key. And I think part, probably part of it is like, you know what, like, I'm really grateful that I've been able to accomplish everything you have, because I know like growing up, you weren't necessarily this creative type and you had this big transformation. So talk a bit about like what, what it was like in high school. Like, I mean, were you always the guy that was just had so, see your, seen yourself being like this incredibly successful producer and showrunner or what was that like? Well, I loved the arts and I was in every play and I assistant directed all the, the plays at school, but I didn't think that I was a particularly gifted artist. I didn't really think of myself as someone who, you know, I was a kid who I played all the sports I did all the plays. The hardest part of school for me was school. I, I had, you know, pretty severe ADHD. So school itself 
the classes that I loved or the things that I was interested in, I was able to really give a lot to and the stuff that I wasn't, I really couldn't. And it, it made school challenging in many ways. So the plays were an incredible outlet for me. You know, I would do the drama and then the musical every year from seventh grade on. But as I said, you know, I would look at the people who could play Stairway to Heaven and be like, well, that's really an artist, you know, and I wasn't singled out ever as being a particularly great writer. I was always singled out as, as being smart, but being uh, lazy or you know, not willing to do what was necessary or just someone who sort of fucked it all off. And right. that disconnect was really hard, but, but, but also nobody ever once said to me, you know, I could write a good paper, but nobody would ever say like, oh, I see this in your future. Mm. But I was drawn to books and movies and music and comedy. And so many of my friends were people who were writing and I loved words. And I, I was always hyperverbal. I always loved the English language. I would read books on words, not to study, not for the SATs. I just dug it. You know, I dug finding new ways to say things. And I loved listening to conversation. I just, you know, I loved listening to the way people talked and then being able to repeat it and incorporate it into my own language. And I always could remember dialogue. I would memorize movies. I just didn't know that those were necessarily sort of like useful skills for a life as a writer. It just didn't connect for me for a very, very long time. Yeah, I think, you know, there's so many people that they're when they're in school, they're in younger or when they're younger, they just they are in that place. And they never think that when they're, when they're older, they're like, man, like, I never thought when I was 16, 17, I would be in the position I am now because life changes, life throws us curveballs. And we pivot, we have these moments, we have these times, where we're able to kind of choose a path where we're going to go and whatever way we choose, will kind of dictate how we continue to evolve as a person. And I think whenever we can recognize that, whatever we're going through is meant to happen for us and not to us. And we're able to kind of continue to move on to the next chapter in our life with our, with like one foot in front of the other and just standing tall. I think good things are meant to happen. And there's a few moments in your story that remind me of that. And one was, you know, you were a pretty successful music executive. I mean, I think what I was reading, I could be wrong, but you, I think you helped Eddie Murphy sign his first record deal. You were heavily involved with Tracy Chapman. And then you had this, this kind of moment of clarity when you were listening to, I think it was the Counting Crows, where you're like, you know what, like, this just isn't for me. So talk a bit about like where you were in that moment and then how well, you really yeah, pivoted out. Yes, I was in the music business and I had a successful career at that. And I was 30 years old and, and my first child was born and I wanted to be the kind of parent who would tell my kids to live their dreams. And I wasn't living my dream. And so, and I realized if I let this uh, impulse, this creative impulse die, like any other death, there would be toxicity to it and it would ooze out onto the people I loved. And once I had that idea that I would become bitter, I realized, okay, I have to find a way to try. I don't want to quit my job because then I have to succeed at this other thing, but I want to carve out either late at night or early in the morning or on weekends, a regular way that I can try to do this thing. And I got a book called The Artist's Way that helped me figure it out by Julia Cameron. And my best friend was like, I'll write a script with you whenever we think of the right thing, when you're ready. And I, I was able to locate a, 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 an amount of time in each day that I could do it. And, and what happened was as soon as I was doing this work in the morning, for me, it was two hours every day, five days a week. And, but as soon as I located that time, 
woke up early, committed to it. It actually made the rest of the day better so that when I would go to my job and have to sit through meetings I didn't want to be in, it was much easier because I'd already done a thing that made me feel alive. And working from a place that makes you feel alive just gives you a boost for the rest of your life. It makes home time easier and it makes the rest of your workday easier. You know, the Counting Crow story is a little different. The Counting Crow story was about one of the things that made me realize I needed to leave the music business. It was because when I heard the Counting Crows, I heard an early demo that someone played me and I freaked out over it. I loved it so much. But instead of just thinking about how much I love their music, I found myself getting jealous that someone else had discovered them and would get the credit for finding them. And I I wanted music to be more pure than that for me. I wanted to be able to have it be a career, but I, but I never wanted to lose the thing that brought me uh, to it. And I, I promised myself that in this uh, game, I would never give in to those sort of competitive, jealous impulses. And I've been really good to my word on that. I, When I hear uh, about a great show or movie, all I want is for it to be great and I want to experience it and I want to become inspired by it. And I do think those are the kinds of feelings that we can control and manage. And I think there's a tremendous amount of power you get from uh, controlling your state in that way, being aware of your human tendencies and being on the alert for when they're not serving you. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think with you, like you said, you had a moment where you had your first child and you were like, you know what, like, I'm not truly following my passion, my purpose, my dreams of what I want to do in life. And I think something that really is interesting in your story is things seem to come back full circle with you, Brian, Um, with the whole Julia Cameron book, The Artist's Way, right? I just recently listened to her um, being interviewed by you on your podcast and you kind of like brought her on and you thanked her for, you know, pretty much, I think it was something crazy that, you know, out of like the couple hundred episodes, all but like 30 or 40 of them, you had brought up how to do the artist way and talked about. I bring it up almost all the time. Yeah, I never yeah. counted, but most episodes it gets mentioned. Yes. Yeah. And I was just inc- incredibly impressed that things just seem to come back full circle for you. I mean, you, I know you, you all help produce I Am Not Your Guru. And, yes. and I know a lot of your personal transformation and personal development stemmed from books. It stemmed from Awaken the Giant Within from Tony Robbins. And then you were able to come back full circle and help produce his movie or the documentary. And you helped introduce... Um, him to, you know, the guy, I think who documented the journey you guys met, I think at date with destiny or something I was reading. And then the whole Julia Cameron thing, you gifted, you were gifted the book, you've paid it forward to so many people now being able to finally have her on your show and kind of give back because, you know, one of the things that I think is incredibly important for anybody who's going through any type of adversity, any tough moments is journaling. And I know you've been doing it now for like 25 years and it's been something that's been a staple in your routine. Like talk a bit about the importance of journaling, the importance of like getting those words on paper and how it's really led to you continuing to evolve and grow as a person. Oh, totally. So The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, the main, which is a, a book designed to help you figure out what's holding you back and putting you on the right path toward being able to be the most creative version of yourself. And the main tools in it are the morning pages and artist date. And the morning pages are three long hand pages that you write every day. And first thing you do when you wake up. So I meditate in the morning and then I do morning pages. And those two, those things, morning pages really are, I think the thing that enabled me to break through whatever kind of blocks I had to, to do this work. 
I'm a, I really think journaling allows you to check in with yourself in a beautiful way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been so many times I think just listening to your story or even in my own personal experience where I've been stuck on something and people have just said, just write, just free flow, write and continue yes. to write and write and write and just let the thoughts come. Just doesn't matter what you say, just forget about it. And I think the whole principle of, you know, waiting five years to read what you wrote, like pretty much just lets, it makes you like drop your ego a little bit and be more humble and not have to worry about so much what you're writing. Like, all right, is this right? Do I really feel this way? And you just write. And I think over time you look back and I've heard you say like a lot of what you've written down has manifested itself because you were truly speaking your heart. And I think there's a lot of people right now, even during the pandemic or pre-pandemic that are feeling stuck. They've lost their edge. And I think you know, one of the things that you you say a lot that I 150% agree with is that when we lose our creativity, there's a part of us that dies, right? I think there's a lot of truth to the fact that when people, you know, they say they retire too early and they lose their sense of purpose because they're not working and they're just kind of sitting at home, they experience depression, they experience anxiety because part of them has truly died. So what advice do you have for, for somebody who's like feeling stuck right now? They've like, you know, like they're trying to recreate their health. They're trying to recreate their life. We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second, but first wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result? Fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt-free chocolate, removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to earthechofoods.com forward slash Doug Bobst. Again, EarthEchoFoods.com forward slash Doug Bopes. Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. I think trying to find the reason you need to make the shift. You know, I had needed to lose weight for a really long time. And because for a variety of reasons that I could have told myself and did tell myself, you know, someone who loves to play sports, even I'm 54 and I still love to play sports, you know, and, but I was 250 pounds and it's, you know, you move around a basketball court or a tennis court at 250. And as you get older, you know, you're going to hurt your knees and your hips and you're going to pull your calf. And, and I wasn't sleeping well and all this stuff. But what finally got me was a dear friend of, of, of ours uh, died. He was like a late in life opioid addict. He, you know, back surgery became an opioid opioid addict. And he died, uh, you know, a year after his death, his daughter, who I love, posted about him somewhere. And I saw the post and the post was like about how much she missed him. And I remember getting so mad at him that he allowed, you know, that he didn't reach out enough to get help. You know, you're, you're, you get mad at people, even though it wasn't his fault. And addiction, once it hits, it's really hard, right? I understand all that. I understand at a certain point, you don't have control of the addiction. It's not, but, but the emotional reaction is you get angry first. But then after I got angry, I thought of my own kids. And I, I thought like, well, I'm not taking opioids. But I'm putting myself in a perilous situation by being this fat. And I don't want my daughter making that post or my son making that post about me. How unfair would that be to them? And having that, and, and then I didn't beat myself up about it. So this is the thing, right? 
we, we all get those thoughts and these impulses, these, but, but because I check in and I do journaling and I meditate, uh, and because I talk to my family, we're communicative people, we make ourselves, you know, well, I realized, okay, I can either just sit around beating myself up or I can use this finally to take action. And, you know, since then I've lost like 40 pounds and, and I can really move around for a long, you know, I bike ride 20 miles a lot of the time and I play tennis for hours and hours. And it's such an enormous change. And I'm, you know, of course, every day I, I worry that I'll put the weight back on, but I mean, I won't, but I, I was like, okay, what steps can I take? Cause I had now a big enough per reason to do it. I, that reason losing, I lost my friend. I felt so bad for his family. I connected that to my own situation. And then I wrote down action steps and I talked to my family about action steps. And I, I found a book that worked for me. And then I met with a counselor who specialized in helping people like me lose weight. And I did it. And I didn't do it through willpower. I did it because the reason is the reasons to make the change were finally strong and big enough that I had to do it. And then I, like I say, I wrote those things down. Gosh, man, congratulations to you. I understand how hard that is. Number one, my condolences for your friend. I have been in recovery from opiates for almost 12 years. I had a three, 400 milligram a day Oxycontin habit. I spent hundreds of dollars a day when I was 20 years old and jail saved my life. And I started working out when I was incarcerated and I lost 50 pounds when I got out and it just completely shifted my whole mind, body and spirit and propelled this massive transformation in my own life. So I do know you know, how hard it can be, number one, to get out of an addiction like that. And two, how much better you feel when you start working out and attaching a deep why under that. Because I knew if I didn't continue to lose weight, I knew if I didn't continue to run and eat better and all that stuff, that I would go back to the old me, which was doing drugs, selling drugs, lying and manipulating people, right. and I would end up back in jail. So you talk about, you know, taking small steps, which I think is incredibly important because anytime somebody tries to make some massive shift in their life, many times they go from zero to a hundred and they fall flat on their face because it's unrealistic, right? So yeah. what are some of the small steps that you took to make this transformation in your own health that you think the audience could adapt into their day-to-day -day life if they're looking to do the same? Well, first though, let's just take a second because I'm sure you talk about this in your pockets all the time. And I read a little bit about you before, but I just want to take a second and congratulate you and salute you for what you were able to do because getting out, even if it took jail, getting out of opioids and getting yourself together and giving back in the way you are is a really beautiful thing. And, and I don't think it should ever pass by without mention. So uh, I think that's really wonderful, dude. And I'm proud of you and happy for you. It's great. Um, yeah, th thank you. That means a lot. I mean, it's as, as I'm seeing now, you know, before COVID, before the pandemic, we were, that's all we heard about is the opioid epidemic and, I got incredibly passionate about putting my message out there and sharing my story just because I knew that there's so many people that are hurting right now. And I believe that fitness, personal development, your inner circle, your mindset should be at the foundation of any sort of recovery program. Because when you take the drugs out of it, just like when you take the food out of it, it's like, well, what's next? I got to rebuild my life. I got to rebuild the way I talk to myself. I got to rebuild the way I conduct my day. And so I appreciate you saying that. And it's been quite the journey, but yeah, I mean, again, kudos again to you. So yeah, just what are some of those steps that you think, you know, anybody well, can really take that are manageable? I think I have a kind of a food addiction. Mm. So, I mean, that's how I'm treating it because I'm one of those people who, if I were, if I was in a meeting, and there are seven of us and, and, and there's a thing of donuts on the table. You know, 
good donuts from like a good place around and you know where i live in new york they're, they're like nine of the best donut places in the world within you know 50 blocks right so someone brings in some crazy thing like you know a guy who has no business fucking around with a donut so like everyone will take a little piece and they can just eat their one little tiny piece of a donut but i take my little piece of a donut and i'm just sitting there the whole time basically it starts probably three quarter focus on the meeting, one quarter on those donuts. And literally the whole time I'm negotiating with myself. I have a voice going on the whole time by the end of the thing. Like, well, you can take a little more. Well, if you take a little more than you eat the whole donut. Well, if you, and you know, in the way that an alcoholic would be talking about measures for myself, I had to eliminate really flour and sugar. I read a book called Breaking Up with Sugar by a woman named Molly Carmel. And for me, that book made a lot of sense. And then I got into therapy about it because I recognize that I'm not somebody who could eat a pizza, man. If I go have pizza, I'm going to have seven slices, you know, and, or seven maybe is an exaggeration, but I'm going to have three, like no matter what. And I'm going to have three slices with an urgency that is just not what a regular person would do. And so I just realized I had to get, oh, I had to get hold of it. And, you know, I did it without drugs, without surgery. By the way, if someone needs drugs or surgery, they should take them if, uh, under the control of a doctor. You know, I have to start by seeing what happens if I just eliminate the foods that trigger me. And those foods that trigger me are, you know, the, the carb heavy foods. And so by eliminating them, because it's hard to binge on Ezekiel bread. You know what I mean? So I can have like uh, a piece of Ezekiel bread and it's fine, but I won't eat bread and, you know, any regular bread at all. And I haven't had a bite of dessert in 10 months. I haven't had a pizza in 10 months. And I'm fine that the weight loss is not so fast, you know, like 40 pounds in 10 months is not really super rapid weight loss, but it's been a comfortable thing for me. And then, you know how it is, man, when you get the momentum, when suddenly what, you know, a, a four mile bike ride was an accomplishment and hard. And then suddenly, you know, you're riding 20 hilly miles and you're fine. You could go play tennis five hours later. When you start to feel those changes, it just makes you want to continue in this direction. Again, like an addict, I have to watch it. Someone said to me the other day, because, you know, our show is so about food and, and I am so plugged into the dining world and, and you know, all my, so many of my friends, if they're not writers or chefs and more than artists or chefs and, but I can't like, someone's like, well, well, when will you have pizza? And right now, like, I'm not that interested in that. I, I love pizza. I, all I want, you know, part of me is I want to go to my favorite pizzeria and a pizza Napolitana in Manhattan and have Anthony Mangieri cook me, which by the way, is like one of the best episodes of my podcast is. Anthony Mangieri, who, the owner of this pizza place, who's a genius, uh, makes pizza making an art. But I know that I'm not at a place yet where I can manage that and have a couple bites of pizza and, and move on. And the trade-off right now is worth it for me, right? Today, it's really worth, worth it for me be, because I feel so much better, man. I mean, the difference between, you know, 212 and 252 is just massive. And I'm six feet, so I'm no longer obese. Yeah, and I just, I know you've had this incredible, uh, you know, journey through improving your own outlook on life, your own mindset, your own routines between getting into in things like transcendental meditation and journaling and books and personal development that you understand the power of doing like the simple things. And I just think people, if they could drink more water, 
eat whole foods, move their body every day. They're doing those three, those three small things could have a massive, I mean, massive impact on their life if they're done over time. And I, I think for you, it seems to me, you've attached such a strong why to your weight loss, to your health now that it's finally given you that momentum to keep going. And, you know, you lost your friend and you have now have kids and you're, I'm sure thinking about, I want to be sure I'm able to walk them down the aisle or attend their events or graduations that now that there, now there's a strong why it's not just, I want to lose 40 pounds. I want to lose 50 pounds. It's like, you know what? Like, I want to be there to support my kids. Well, that was the thing. Like, so as I was starting this in January, February, March, and I was going slowly when COVID hit and I saw the comorbidity of obesity, well, that was just something that was in my control. I could be, I could, you know, still overweight, but I could not be obese. And I was like, if I can control that, like, look, COVID could still kill me. I could get it tomorrow and be dead three days from now, but I'm improving my chances by not being obese. And so that was another thing that allowed me to focus. And then what you were talking about at the beginning of this, like, like one way that I was able to look at this pandemic time um, and be grateful for it was I was home. I was in a place where I had a grill out back over the summer and I could make whole food, healthy food for myself. I, I wasn't you know, going 18 hours a day making my show. I was in a place where I could control what I ate in a simple way for three meals and a snack every day. I could be plan it and execute it. And, you know, for normal people, none of that seems hard, but for people like me who struggle with this, those things get overwhelming at times. And here I was able to just go, all right, well, I can buy meat. I can cook it. I can buy veggies. I can cook the veggies. I, and I was able to just organize my, you know, I was like, okay, if I exercise a certain amount and I want to have some fruit, I can limit the, I can have exactly this and I can plan it in advance. So it's not like suddenly I'm going to be binging on fruit. And, and I, I want to be clear. I wasn't a binge eater. I wasn't someone who come home and eat um, a pint of ice cream because I had, I would white knuckle it and not quite do that. You know, there are people who would eat three baguettes, like big things of bread. I would just eat one but I would want three. And so it didn't matter. Like it still was just, that's why I was 250, not 350. But, but I just am aware of it all. And then during this time, I've been able to manage it. And then, you know, now I'm aware of, I have enough momentum that I feel like when life goes back to normal, mm. I'll have a routine grooved in so that I don't just allow myself to bob along and get out of control. I'm really trying to work on the water thing, by the way. I said it to Amy, my wife this morning. Just like we have to like remind each other all day long to drink enough water. Yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. Number one, you brought up a, a point that I think everybody needs to hear is you can only focus on what you can control, right? Like we only are able to see what's in front of us, what's around us. And, and even during this whole pandemic, we can't control whether we get COVID. We can't control whether our business is going to be open or not. We can't control uh, where we can go, you know, so to speak. We can't control, you know, the outside world, so to speak, around us. We can control our health. We can control, you know, what we watch on TV, what we listen to, uh, what we read, who we spend time with. And I think a lot of people just, they forget that, you know, and I think they need to be reminded constantly because there's so much rhetoric out there. There's so much, you know, noise on the outside world that we forget to be like, okay, like right now we're in a tough time. Everybody's in a tough time. Many have it worse than us. What can we control? Well, we can control how much we move our body. We can control how much water we drink and what we eat and that sort of thing. And water is the foundation. I always tell people when they come to me, 
for fitness and training advice. Like, Oh, like, what should I eat? What kind of workout should I do? And I'm like, how much water do you drink? And typically they're like, well, I try to drink a glass or two of my glass or two. And you know, the easy rule of thumb that I recommend to people is just simple, like half your body um, in fluid ounces, half, half your body weight in fluid ounces every day. And then once people can address that and attack that, then it's like, okay, wow, I have, I've increased, I've had, I've achieved the goal, uh, this goal. Wait, you I've, want me drinking like six huge bottles of water every day? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I recommend. What do you want me, how many, how, so you want me drinking 110 ounces about, no, I mean 106 or whatever. Ounces. Yeah. Ounces, ounces a day. Yeah. That's like the, the golden rule with the rule of thumb for that is like half your body weight in fluid ounces every single day. Some people say more, some people say a little bit less. That's kind of like, you know, the, the, the standard. And then if you're exercising vigorously, it's more. I got to ask you routine. So when, when do you drink your first big thing of water? Like, how do you do it? So first, first time, first thing in the morning, when I wake up, I try to drink like 20 to 24 ounces of water. Sometimes I'll throw a lemon in it. Sometimes I, I won't, it just depends on a, if I have the lemon or not. Before coffee? Or yeah. No coffee? Before, I love coffee. I'm a coffee addict. I mean, if I had one vice right now that people were like, what does Doug do too much of? It'd be coffee. I mean, I probably drink, eesh, I mean, sadly, 32 ounces of coffee a day. So, and so so wait, how does it, so, so you wake up, you, you do your, you make yourself have the water before you have the coffee. Most of the time. Yeah. That's if I'm like in my routine, in my rhythm, which, you know, I, I'm not perfect. I, that's what I try and do have, you know, 20 to 24 ounces of water. And then throughout the day, I try to just to drink it throughout the day. I mean, if, if there's times where I'm really busy, I'll set timers on my phone. I often will carry around a water jug that like I have a water jug. That's a, a gallon jug. It's not like one of those uh, ones. Turn it on the video for a second. So you turn on your video and show me your water jug. It's it's, it's in my, it's in my car. Just, I just okay. kept it there, but I'll send it to you. The okay. one that I have or email it to me. I will I understand this. Yeah. So you fill that thing all day long and you're just drinking it all day long, drinking it all day long. And it just, it's a reminder. It's like when I carry it with me, it's like, okay, like here you're, you got 32 ounces left. You have, You've drank, you know, 70 ounces of water because for me, it's like, if I can't measure it, if I can't track it, I won't do it. I've learned that throughout the years. If yeah. just like anything else, if I can't track it, if I don't know where my numbers are, I'm not going to do it. And I just have I've had to learn to adapt to that because I just, I got to play to that. And I think if people are just, you know, banking on the fact that they're going to remember to drink exactly 10 glasses of water every day, it's really hard for most people because a, you know, they don't really know how many ounces in a glass they're having to remember it. And I think just having a bottle that that's, that's calculated and measured or like setting timers in your phone, if, if that's like a major goal, I know of yours. I'm not drinking enough. I know it's the thing I've been talking about it. And like I said, I got to, and my, my friend Trayvon on, on, on Twitter reminds me every day to drink water. And I always do when he reminds me, but that first half of the day, cause I wake up and I have the coffee and I like that the coffee, you know, but I get it. Drink the water right before the coffee and the coffee's your reward. That's good. That's a good sort of like reward system in a way. Yeah. And I'm not one of those trainers that, you know, gets on people about drinking coffee. I know some people they're like, oh, you can, you don't drink, you shouldn't drink that much coffee. I'm like, you know, as long as you don't have any like heart condition or anything that's medically stopping you. I mean, honestly, I drink don't. coffee. I always, I'll say I always drank coffee black. So I never took my calories from coffee. Yeah. And I think you know, it's just like anything else though with health, I think some easy wins are, are water. Cause it's like the biggest bang for your buck. Like just doing that alone, you'll feel so much better because when we're dehydrated and haven't drinking enough water, you can tell you're just more brain fog, you're stressed out, your you know, blood pressure can differentiate your, your 
your heart rate can can go up. You're just not as you know energetic. You're lethargic. You're moody. And when you do, you know, fill yourself up up with water, your metabolism actually increases too because most of our body is water and most of our muscles are filled with water, right? So like if you're if you want your muscles to be as firm and as productive as they can be, uh, they got to be filled with water. So that's one thing I, I always try to get my clients to do. This is a small win to be like, okay, you've built this habit in your system. Now it's built off of that. Instead of being like, okay, you haven't exercised in 15 years. You haven't been able to maintain any kind of yeah. fitness program. Go to the gym and work out six days a week, change your nutrition, only eating whole foods, drink water, take these supplements, blah, 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 blah. And, and they're like, so overwhelmed. They're like, well, just yesterday I had like two cheese pizzas right. and a cheesesteak. And didn't drink any water. How do you expect me to do that? So it's, I think just starting small and then just you build over time. And then you look back 10, 15 months from now and be like, wow, I've really gotten in a good routine. I'm eating better. I'm drinking more water. I'm feeling great. I'm sleeping better. My relationships are better. But a lot of times people, they don't see the journey. They just look at the end result and they're like, wow, like he must be lucky. He must have good genetics or it must be because he has yeah. money. And really they, they don't see the work. And for you now, everybody sees you as the showrunner of Billions, and it's one of the most popular shows on TV, but they didn't see the grind in the start. They didn't see you putting in the hours early on in your career. And they didn't, a lot of people might not even know that you know you were the writer behind Rounders, which, by the way, phenomenal movie. I mean, I'm incredibly jealous that you got to work with Edward Norton and Matt Damon at the prime of their career. Like It was a like goodwill hunting, Rounders. And then Saving Private Ryan, I think, I believe came out shortly after that. And then Edward Norton, it was, it was Rounders, The Italian Job, Fight Club, like all in that same era. So talk a bit about that, what that, what that experience was like and how the, the plot for Rounders was inspired by law school. Well, yeah, for sure. But wait, I got, I'm sorry. I will. I promise. I don't okay, want okay. but, but I got to ask you this question because I have you here and you're an expert on this. It's something that's been really like I've been worrying about is, it's going to get super windy and cold soon. I'm not, I know I'm not going to go on these long bike rides and I'm so worried I'm going to lose all of the cardio gains. So you think an elliptical is a decent, like an hour a day? Is that going to keep me going from the cardio of like the 20 mile bike rides? Because to have to go back to starting over again next summer, it's going to suck. Yeah, I, I can relate to that. And I can imagine what you're going through because I was worried about that too. I remember when I was coming and I got out of jail, it was like, I was used to being able to run in jail because it was warm in there. It was heat. And then when I got out, it was wintertime. And I was like, oh crap, what am I going to do? Well, thankfully for me, I, I didn't have knee issues or anything. So I could just buy some warm weather gear and, or cold weather gear and get out and run. For you, what I would recommend doing, because I don't want you to lose progress either, is get an elliptical or get a rower. Rowers are super low impact on your joints. It's something that I use with all of my clients. And they're like, I think they're less than a thousand bucks and they're easy to store. So you can like lay it up against the wall. I mean, I'm happy to to text or email you some of my recommendations for that and help you out with that. Because yeah, I mean, I, I understand where you're at. I understand you've made all this progress and you're like, wow, like it's getting cold. I can feel, I can start to you know, well, breathe yeah, out. Just starting to suck. Truthfully, like I can play tennis. There's a place I can play tennis where it's like, I can open enough doors that I'm not worried for COVID and it's indoors and there's only one court, but I can't do that every day either. So it's like, the bike riding is the sort of thing that I know I have and it's, I can feel it going away. It's going to be freezing and snowy and crappy. So it's like, but you think an elliptical is a decent, can you get a good cardio workout on an elliptical or no? 
Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and when you get it, or if you get it, I'd be happy to put to help put the, together something for you. I mean, I'll just send you some things because you can just, you can modify the workout based on effort, based on time. You can do things okay, where cool. you're exerting yourself for yeah. you know 30 right, seconds. We'll email about it. All right. So to answer your question, I will, please send me an email. I would love that. And we'll go back and forth. I appreciate it. I'm grateful. Yeah. You know, rounders was the thing that, that Dave and I wrote right then when, when the thing I was talking about earlier, when we decided to, when I decided I need to step up and start working in this way. And I was playing a lot of poker and I was in law school at night while I was working. And you always, when you, you do what we do, you always let stuff that you feel, even if the details are different, you know, you're always becoming, you become sensitive to cataloging what you're feeling and going through, cataloging what other people, you know, or feeling and going through. And as I said, I always listen to the way people talk. So Dave and I wrote that script and, you know, based on experiences we both had, but fictional characters completely, but just informed by what we saw in these poker clubs in, in New York, these illegal poker rooms. And it was incredible to get to work with, with Matt and, and Edward, who are still both dear friends and John Malkovich, who I've continued to work with, you know, throughout our careers. And Edward too, by the way, um, we made the illusionist with him and, and we all talk, you know, frequently. And it was great because we were all close enough in age. I think those guys are three or four years younger than, than, than me. But, you know, so I was 31 when we started shooting the movie. They were like 27, 26. And, and so we were, we bonded quickly and went through that experience together. Goodwill Hunting came out in the middle of shooting the movie. So suddenly Matt became a superstar. Edward had made Primal Fear and the, the People Against Larry Flint uh, movies. And so he was, and everyone says, I love you. So Edward was more famous. Uh, and then, you know, in the beginning and Goodwill Hunting came out and then it was the two of them. And uh, being on that ride with them was just amazing. They're both beautiful cats, really great guys. And uh, as is Malkovich, who I, I, I love to death. And, and yeah, man, getting to have that be the experience of the, your first movie was mind boggling and, and an incredible start to a career. You know, the movie failed uh, commercially in the theaters when it came out. And that was also a great lesson because we had to focus on making the next thing and on, on just doing the work, just you know, showing up every day, as we talked about earlier, controlling what you can control. Eventually that movie became so beloved and, and recognized for how special it is, but at the time it wasn't. And so there were so many great lessons packed into that experience, man. It's, it's, it's sort of the thing that continues to, to teach me and, and guide me throughout my career. Yeah, and I think it's really important to note that you're shooting this movie, you're you're filming it and everything else, and Goodwill Hunting comes out. Matt Damon becomes a superstar. You got some other heavy hitters in the movie. You got John Malkovich, by the way, who's also in Billions, and he was, in, I believe, in Con Air too, another great movie. And and then you had Ed Norton, and so you're you're on high hopes of this movie being successful. And then sometimes, you know, things don't work out the way that they're meant to or the way right. that they're supposed to or whatever. And it hits the box office and doesn't do as well as you think. And you have two choices. You can either say, you know what, like I quit. I'm never going to do this again. Like screw my life. Or you can just be like, you know what, like I thought it was a great movie. I think we did everything we could. What can I learn from this and what lessons can I take to move on throughout my career? And the fascinating thing, and I don't know how common this is. I, I can imagine it happens you know, every so often is how you've based, I mean, a lot of what you've written on your own life experiences. Rounders came out of, you know, your own college experience, playing a lot of poker in that, in that side of the world. And then Billions, from what I've heard you talk about the show, came out of a lot of life experience for you that you wanted to expose people in a way to these billionaires, to these hedge fund guys that they didn't really have access to in the way they communicated with each other, the way they talked. 
So talk about a bit about like the show Billions and you know how how the the whole premise of the the storyline well, came yeah, about it. Billions, although that didn't come out of life experience, meaning I was never in a hedge fund or anything like right. that. We we just started noticing because of where we both live, it's me in the city and Dave in in Connecticut. You know, we we noticed the way that these financial titans were going through the world, and along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, we noticed also a couple things. One, we we saw that at the time, U.S. attorneys had an incredible amount of power, discretionary power, mm. what they wanted to prosecute and what they didn't. And we saw these hedge fund people kind of living like nation states. And we realized you could set these forces against one another and it would be almost a Shakespearean kind of a construct. And so, you know, you spend a lifetime doing all this work and then once in a while, everything coalesces and comes together. And it just set up perfectly for the kinds of people David and I have been studying forever the kind of dialogue we like to write fit the world perfectly. And we found these amazing actors, you know, to be in the show. And, and you know, you do this stuff for long enough, you know, we're, we're 24 years ago yesterday, David and I started writing Rounders. And so over this long period of time, you hope that you get better at your craft. You hope that you get better at recognizing the stories that you're supposed to tell because they're the ones that somehow you have a point of view on, you've, you, you have a, a feeling about, and, and you learn where to put your energy and your resources. And I'll tell you, we knew this was one to focus on and put everything uh, into. And we were coming off of a huge failure. We'd had run a runner come out and just bomb at the box office. And we got fired off of a show we were going to work on. And, and basically, this was an agent had said to us, we were going to be hard to get jobs for because uh, we were so cold in town. And I was talking to my wife about whether we we're going to have to sell our apartment, even though I'd had an uh, uh, you know, 18-year or 19-year career at that point, um, sort of at the top of my profession. But suddenly we were like told there was no future. And we just dug deep, man. And we, you know, we just dug deep and decided we were going to give everything we had to writing this story and finding a way to get it made. And because the thing we could control to go back to your theme was I could control walking through Central Park every day, showing up at my office, opening my laptop and trying my best to depict the world that fascinated me. No one could stop me from doing that. Hollywood couldn't stop me from doing it. No agent could stop me. No television executive could stop me from doing that. I had within my power the ability to lose myself in the work for a certain number of hours a day. And I was determined to do that. And I did, and, and, and I would have kept going until something hit. Yeah, and I'm thankful you did, because I love the show, as do so many other people. And I think it's incredibly inspiring to know that, you know, you had this long longevity of a career, you know, 18, 19 years, and you're, you know, you've had, you had had a lot of success, you had some, some setbacks, and you're like, wow, like, it's, this is a make or break moment, and you figured out what you can control, and you controlled what you could, and you were put your head down, you wrote, and you came up with arguably one of the most creative shows ever. What I love most about Billions, and I was talking to my corporate client is this private financial advisory, wealth management firm called Verdance Capital Advisors. And some of them watched the show and love the show. And what I was telling them is that one of the things that intrigues me the most is there's no like her true hero or villain. Every character, it seems that you think is good, all of a sudden has this bad side. Like at the beginning, people are cheering for Axe, and then he starts acting a little wild. And then the same with Chuck and then Wendy and Connerty and, and all these guys so was that the original plan at the beginning yeah, the of the show? These people exist in the gray area, you know, and, and the question with Taylor is Taylor going to be able to, you know, would someone like Taylor be able to stay, to stay pure, to stay good in, in, in this world? And I mean, what we see is, you know, a lot of 
gray area in, 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 in these sides of the world. And, and we felt like we had to depict it that way. We didn't want to just show either side as being purely heroic. You've done an amazing job with that. And I think there's so many shows that there's a good first season, good second season. Then you're like the third season, like, oh, I wish I would, they would have just stopped for the second season. And Billions, it's like every season to me keeps me on my seat. And it's not just me who says that. You hear that from so many people, which is why I think right now people are like itching and itching for it to come back on. And so kudos to you for that, because I think a lot of times what happens is in your industry, you have somebody for a season or two, and then it's like, eh, they produce three or three, four more seasons and it kind of bombs. But every one of yours has continued, I think, to get better. All I can tell you is Dave and I and our, our, everyone we collaborate with on the show, we just really do give it like every, we just give it everything we have. We love it. I mean, getting to write for these actors and tell these stories is, it's amazing, man, that this is what I get to do for a living. So I'm just fully aware of it and really, really appreciate it. So, you know, with that being said, with you, you talk a lot about cutting bait and that I hear you make a lot of comparisons to in, in life, you know, you got to know when to, to cut something short, whether it's, you know, you're dating somebody, whether it's a job, as far as in your life and in your work, like when, how do you really know when it's time to kind of like end a project or say, you know what, this isn't for me. I got to move on and go on to the next thing. Well, I think I talk more about saying no to things. Mm. And, and I think that, you know, if you want to do a thing, like I was talking about where you carve out an hour early in the morning, that means you have to say no to doing a lot of social shit at night. You know? Right. And, so that's always been something that I realized was really crucial. And I think the ways in which I check in with myself, as I said, are helpful to that, right? To the thing you're asking about, which is I don't really lie to myself about stuff. So if I'm in a situation that's not a good one, I know it because I'm sitting there meditating 20 minutes twice a day and I'm journaling and that stuff's going to bubble to the surface. And so if I'm working on something that's not, the right thing to be working on. I'm going to know it and I'm going to find a way to switch gears. You know, I mean, I also think there's a tremendous value in, in sticking with something when it gets hard. The best book on this is Seth Godin's book, The Dip. I recommend it to everybody. And it's about how to figure out if you should quit or keep going at a, diff- a certain thing. He's a genius and, and that, one of my best friends. And it's a, a very important book. And I highly recommend The Dip. Yeah. And I've heard his episode on your podcast as well. And I think you're right. I think there's a, a fine line between seeing things through and then also honoring yourself and giving yourself that time so you can know what aligns with you and cutting bait out of your life, whether it's certain people, certain foods, certain social things at night. And so, you know, I, I know we kind of covered so much ground in your career and your childhood into, you know, current day to day with billions. The last question I want to ask you is this. You know, the theme of your podcast is called The Moment. I know you're, you've themed a lot of your life around certain moments in your life that have encouraged massive transformations in different areas of your well-being, different areas of your mind, body, and soul. So imagine there's somebody right now that's, that's really struggling. They're in one of those moments where they just are feeling lost. They're feeling like they're not going to make it. Maybe it's, you know, one of your kids or a close friend. Like, what are you telling them? Well, uh, let's take this question really seriously because if someone is listening and they're feeling like they're in that place, I'll say all around your examples of people who felt like that and with reason, right? I'm not somebody who's going to say to you, Oh, all your problems are fake. I'm sure they're real. I'm sure some of them are real. 
but you have so much more power and personal agency than you think in your low moments. You can take some step today, today, make a plan today to move forward. It starts with figuring out what you want. It starts with really just take out a piece of paper and tell yourself you're not going to censor and just write for a half hour. And even if you're not a writer, especially if you're not a writer, grab a pen and, and just write down everything that's going through your mind and find the thread of where you want to go and let that be your North star and just take a small step in that direction. I would also say if you're really struggling, find somebody to call today and talk through it with them. Don't suffer and struggle alone. My story is uh, a story where in the moment of crisis, I went to my best friend and I went to my wife and I talked to both of them. And uh, those are hard conversations, right? To have. Nobody wants to appear vulnerable, but you find that when you put it out there, honestly, people give you back so much. And even if you feel like, oh, I don't really have anybody, there's somebody you can talk to. And journal and talk to somebody and take a small step and know that a series of small steps add up. And I'm talking to you if you're not a writer. Something I say to writers is one page a day, even if you take Sundays off, is 315 pages by the end of the year. Everybody has time to write one page a day. Translate that to whatever it is you're talking about. Everybody can today eat a little more healthy for one meal or drink a little bit more water or do couch. I would say one thing I would say for everybody to do, literally anybody listening to this, is you will feel better if you exercise. And people get so mad at you when you say that to them sometimes, and then they go and exercise and they always text or call you and go, oh, dude, you're 100% right. Thank God I fucking exercised. Like everybody gets mad when you tell them to exercise and everybody's grateful afterwards and thanks you. And Couch to 5K, I think is like the most amazing thing. You can get tons of, there's free Couch to 5K programs all over the place that lay it out for you. And it's a way you can go from someone who's like a couch, you know, couch potato to running 3.2 miles in a, a month and a half or two months. And it works. It works if you're, uh, out of shape fat person, if you're a young person, it just works. I've seen it work over and over and over again. And the great thing about Catch 5K is the first day you go out and do it, you're basically moving kind of quickly for a minute and then two minutes you're walking. But at the end of it, you've done something. You can check it off on the wall. You've done a day of Couch to 5K and you do it three days a week, I think, or four. And what'll happen is, I don't know, three weeks in or four weeks in, you're going to run a mile. And if you know someone who doesn't know how to run a mile and you run a mile, you feel amazing. And if you're already a great runner and you're still feeling crappy, then use what I'm saying in some other area of your life. Small steps, the feeling of progress throws you into the next day, ready to make more progress. I love it, man. Couldn't have said it better myself. I think the whole notion of small steps to big progress is something anybody can relate to. And I think we're both prime examples of that. So Brian, I wanted to thank you so much for coming on. And I appreciate your time today. And I will be sure to plug your podcast, The Moment, and you on Instagram and Twitter. And, you know, we appreciate you listening to this episode. And all we ask in return is if it really touched your heart to leave a review, share this episode, tag myself, tag Brian. And once again, I appreciate you listening to this episode of The Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bopes. We'll see you next time.